Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silken at, in Edinburgh, joined as always by Frank Hagaliano. How are you doing, Frank? David, I'm great. Thank you very much. In the news in recent months have been a number of stories about academic freedom and the state of academic freedom in the United States, including stories about the uh, removal of tenure at the University of Georgia, stories about professors at the University of Florida not being, being told by their employer uh, not to testify uh, in court, uh, and stories uh, about uh, tenure being denied uh, to Nicole uh, Hannah-Jones at UNC. Um, so there are some claims that there are being attacks on freedom of speech and on academic freedom on campus. At the same time, we have other people arguing that there's not enough freedom on campus, that certain voices are silenced. Uh, we hear this particularly from conservatives, some of whom uh, have have created what it looks like it may be a, a real university at some point, but is right now an idea on the internet, the University of Austin, where they claim to have unfiltered access to truth and freedom to say whatever you want, no matter how controversial. Uh, so we thought all these things might be a good opportunity to talk about academic freedom, figure out what that means in the American context, uh, its history, and its present. Yeah, I mean, I think it's worth... Um... Yeah, well, I just make two observations. One is kind of uh, in setting out our stall, there's a very similar debate going on here in the UK. And I think um, uh, we're going to ignore that for the purposes <laughs> of this episode. Not because it's not germane. It's actually an important mm. debate. And, and uh, in fact, the contours of the debates in the, in the UK and mm. US are very, very similar. But because the um, well, because this is an American history podcast, we're going to talk about the U.S. context also. Um, the, the legal systems are slightly different when it comes to issues of freedom of speech, and, and um, neither of us are lawyers. And so we're, we're going to get it over our, in over our heads in one country at a time. Exactly. <laughs> I think one jurisdiction at a time. So, so the, the U.K. debate, it would, I mean, and this goes to debates about so-called wokeness and everything else. So there's a lot to unpack here, but that does go to, to my second observation, David, in response to your laying things out. I think there's a distinction to be made between freedom of speech and academic freedom. I think these are related hmm. things, but they're not, they're not identical things. And to some extent, at least in the popular discourse about this, and I think the University of Austin has demonstrated this over the past few days for people who followed that um, Debate might be overstating it, but the, the the responses to the University of Austin on Twitter, the the, announce, yeah, the announcement of what they want to be in ways people yeah, responded to it. Yes, that's right. So uh, for anybody who's dipped into that discourse, um, I I do think there's a slight there is a distinction to be drawn between academic freedom and freedom of speech. Um, academic freedom, I suppose, could be seen as a subset of freedom of speech, but it's not exactly the same thing. I mean, for us, the kind of Simple definition of academic freedom, which I uh, have been working to over the past few days and reading about this, is I guess the ability for us as academics and also for students to pursue knowledge without uh, unreasonable political or government intervention. Is that a fair definition as a, as a kind of point of departure? It's a place to start, at least. Yeah, right. I mean, again, yeah. I don't want to be too prescriptive, but I think that's slightly so. I think that's a subset of freedom of speech. Mm. And again, in the U.S. context, this is very complicated because there's the First Amendment, of course, enshrines uh, freedom of speech, 
but there's also in the U.S. context there are legal distinctions to be drawn between public and private institutions, and so there sure. there are important local variations in all of this. Oh, to be so, sure. So I don't, I don't want to belabor things yeah. at the start, but are, are you okay with that distinction between academic freedom and freedom? Yeah, speech? I mean, I think, and we'll we'll get to this. There's a whole series of Supreme Court decisions yeah. in the 1950s where they actually sort of try to sort of suss out what the relationship is here, um, and and the Supreme Court uh, in a one of them, I'll just read you a bit where they sort of talk about this. Uh, this is from a case from 1967 about loyalty oaths, which we'll, we'll get to, I'm sure. Uh, Supreme Court ruled, Our nation is deeply committed to safeguarding academic freedom, of which transcendent value to all of us, and not merely to the teachers concerned. That freedom is therefore of special concern to the First Amendment. So it's, they see it as part of the First Amendment freedom of speech, but also it has its own peculiarities to it. So uh, if we're trying to figure out where academic freedom, this idea, begins, it, does that idea exist I mean, when we talk about universities in the colonial era or during the, the you know, revolutionary era? What would, is that an idea that would have made sense to them or not? Um, I'm not sure they would have recognized it as such mm. and certainly not used it in the way that we do. Uh, the, the slight hesitation you heard in my voice is I think they would have enjoyed discussing it, the kind of people who taught in 18th century universities. This is exactly the kind of thing they love talking about. <laughs> but but the, the, the concept itself didn't exist because almost all, in fact, certainly all of the colonial institutions of higher learning were established primarily, at least when, when they were at their inceptions, to trade ministers. Hmm. So they almost all have some kind of religious affiliation. Harvard, Yale, Princeton. Yep. Yeah. Uh, but William and Mary yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. And and and, uh, and they, Penn is a little bit different, but uh, so they're training ministers and basically you have to, to adhere to the principles of whatever, the theoretically you have to adhere to the religious principles of the institution. And so you're already inhibiting people's freedom of expression and thought and and uh, in that way um, you know I realized I said we weren't going to use British examples at our own university mm. there were religious tests for a long time yeah. uh, if one gets promoted to to full professor here you you're invited to go to a ceremony to sign the professorial register which goes back to the late 1580s when when the institution was or the 15 early 1580s when the institution was created and when I did this a few years ago, the, 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 the then principal made a joke about how, you know, in the beginning there were very strict restrictions applied to professors. And you were basically, when you signed this register, you were, you were committing to these, you were, you were making a, a, a formal commitment to uphold these principles at the university. And over the years, they, you know, it was kind of, it went from very strict Presbyterianism to sort of, yes, I agree not to burn down the university. <laughs> or, 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 you know. What did you agree to, Frank? <laughs> you know, it was sort of like, I'll be good. Uh, okay. <laughs> and, and, and so it's been watered down over mm. the years. And, and again, the, these colonial American institutions would have had similar, if not formal pledges, the, the, the requirements would have been quite clear. With the coming of the revolution and the changes one gets in, 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 the, in the culture in the late 18th, early 19th century, and we see the emergence of some secular institutions, particularly one of your alma maters, yes. the University of North Carolina, 
but also Jefferson's own University of Virginia. These were... And University of Georgia, which also yes, come around the same time. That's right. right. Were founded, and it's interesting, they're all in the South. Mm-hmm. Um, but they are founded as secular institutions. Yes. So without a religious foundation, um, yet there are still limits on, on um, academic freedom or free speech. We see this, you know, Jefferson didn't want Hume's history of England taught. Because he thought it was it would it would it was too well written and it would make people young men who read it into Tories, uh, <laughs> because he didn't agree with Hume's okay, perspective. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't want one one of the driving forces, and Andrew O'Shaughnessy mm. has shown this in his recent book on, on the founding of the University of Virginia. One of the driving impulses for Jefferson is to create a counterweight because he's worried that all these Virginia gentry types go north like James mm. Madison had to go study at Princeton, and they come back as Federalists. Because they're they're getting basically infected when they go up up to these Yankee institutions and they come back uh, imbued with federalist values and he's seeking to avoid that. So UVA is established. It's secular and we think, oh well, that's more modern than the other places. But even then, there's there's certainly a political agenda at work and there are limits on academic freedom. One yeah. can see. Your original question was, would this concept as we're discussing it apply? And, I, and so the answer I think is no. Yeah. But you're giving a, me a well. I mean, so I think one thing that's important to sort of recognize about universities, whether it's the sort of colonial era ones, which began as divinity school plus, yeah. yep. or the sort of revolutionary era state universities that are designed in part to create good statesmen to lead the republic kind of thing. That's right. They're meant to train leaders as opposed to ministers. Um, is that in neither of these cases are these really institutions that are concerned with creating new knowledge as a primary motivation or goal of the institution. You know, they, they, there's research that happens at these places, but that's not necessarily what it becomes later on. That's a very good point. That's right. Um, you know, so you don't really, the, the sort of desire to, to do cutting edge or controversial or challenging research isn't at the heart of what the institution is about and the way that it becomes. Um, you know, and so these are in some ways very conservative institutions. On one hand, they're about replicating bodies of knowledge and replicating patterns of thought. You know, when you go to Harvard Divinity School in the colonial era, they didn't want you to be an innovative and challenging thinker. They wanted you to think what the church thought about particular questions. Um, and if you were too far outside the norm, that was that was that was frowned upon. Yeah, that's right. And I think you make a really good point about the um, production of knowledge because it wasn't necessarily the expectation. I mean, many of the people who taught at these institutions Mm -hmm. became, um, wrote and produced things, but they didn't necessarily write in their own fields or, 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 well, they weren't really foods they were teaching in. That's right. There weren't, yeah. So explain that. There weren't disciplines in the same way. If you went to uh, one of these schools, whether it was, Harvard or, or UNC or UVA during during the early part of the 19th century, um, like there weren't majors in the way that or, or degree programs in the way that either Americans or, or British people would understand it. You went to go and study. There was a sort of a standard course of, of subjects that pretty much everybody took the same thing. Uh, you know, there were these were relatively small institutions, so the the faculty would number maybe in the dozens, and the students would number maybe in the hundreds. Uh, at the largest of these institutions, um, 
you know, and so you would have, you would learn classics, you would learn rhetoric, you'd learn some mathematics, you'd learn a little bit of science, maybe if there was time, um, but they weren't the kind of institutions that they would become in the later part of the 19th century. Um, so you actually don't really have, I think, that many issues about questions about academic freedom or challenges to it uh, until the very end of the 19th century. There are a couple of, of interesting examples, though, um, of, of the limits of academic freedom in, in the 19th century. One had, involves a professor at UNC, a guy named Benjamin Hedrick, who was a chemistry professor, um, who was asked by a student at one point, like, what do you think about the Republican Party? He said, oh, actually, I kind of like, I'm simplifying the story here, but see, I actually kind of like the Republican Party, which was then a very radical party and very foreign to, to and hostile to slavery and foreign to, to North Carolina. There wasn't a Republican Party in North Carolina in 1856. Did he say this in class, David, or just... I, I think it was, no, it was outside of class. Right, okay, but it was in communication was with a student. student. Well, and then there was a newspaper article that, that, that challenged him on it uh, in a, in a, you know, uh, in a local newspaper, and then he wrote a letter defending his political views, and then basically what happened is he got fired, and he was told like you are not welcome at the university because you hold these political views, and you were therefore you know, and he was actually he had to leave the state because there were threats of violence against him. Um, there was one point where they tried to tar and feather him at an educational conference uh, that he went to shortly thereafter, so he had to he had to leave. Well, if they had tarring and feathering in academic conferences, they might be more today. That might be more interesting. But anyway, that's yeah. not it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, as someone who runs academic conferences, I'm not going to endorse <laughs> the reintroduction of tarring and feathering either on a literal or metaphorical level. So, so, so hold on. Let, let, let me just uh, ask you a question or two about this. Uh, would is it fair to say, in your view, that this is the equivalent of we've seen some notorious cases in the past decade? Hmm. Uh, well, in the past two decades in particular, but with the rise of social media, of academic members of staff at various institutions saying things on Twitter, for mm. example, um, and getting themselves in trouble and in some cases fired. Is this, is this the first case of Latin American history that we know of? Well, I mean, one of the interesting things about this case, um, and, and I think it's become relevant when we talk about academic freedom in a later in later chronological context is, you know, this is about his personal political views outside of class that are not related to his field of study, right? You know, he's a chemistry professor. The Republican Party, as far as I know, didn't have a stance on, on ionic bonds or anything, um, you know, so it doesn't fit in within his academic remit. When you when we talk in the 20th century about you know what are the bounds of academic freedom, it extends to often is is extends to you know teaching your subject in your in the classroom, research on the area of which you have expertise. But oftentimes there's a gray area I think between what our area of expertise is and sort of the sort of broader political world in which we live in. Um, I think that's especially true for historians. You know when we talk about contemporary politics we do so in part because we're political beings living in the same soup everybody else is but we're also bringing our sort of historical expertise to the to bear on some of these questions and there's there's a line about where one begins and the other ends right um yeah i don't know where for personally i don't know where david the historian and david the political thinker 
uh, in as much as I am one, you know, where, where those where those things exist. Oh, David, uh, every time I think about it, you contain multitudes. I can <laughs> Uh, something like that. They're all, um, but so, so I think yeah, that's a case where 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 you know, were that case to have happened in a sort of different political moment, uh, you know, one could imagine sort of a different outcome for for, for Hedrick. We also have like some you know, people in that sort of you know, antebellum period talking about ideas about academic freedom, and the one sort of most articulate case I could find was by George Templeton Strong, who was a very famous sort of political figure and diarist uh, in New York City in the 1850s and 1860s. And he was a uh, trustee of uh, what was then Columbia College, what is now Columbia University. It's kind of America's answer to Samuel Pepys as a diarist, don't you think? Uh, yeah, without the fire. Uh, but otherwise, yes. No, no, he's a, I mean, he is a very, you know, well, he's sort of a thoughtful... Anyway, so he writes this... He writes about you know, what is it that the university is supposed to do, and he writes to his fellow trustees that in order for them to create a great university, they need to employ professors of great repute and ability to teach and confide everything at the outset to their control, that is the control of the teachers. And he says, like, the university, if we want to lead the university well, we need to hire the best people and let them run the thing rather than us tell them what to do. But interesting, I mean, that's a really interesting quote, David. Um, not least because the emphasis is on teaching. He's leading with teaching. teaching. So again, yeah. we're not talking about knowledge production at this point yeah. as, as the primary activity of the university. Yeah, no, to be sure, right? I think the, the, the moment in, in, you know, when American universities become research universities and really sort of change the landscape uh, is in the late 19th century. And there's yep. a couple of big things that are happening then that I think are worth understanding in order to make sense of academic freedom. One is the German model of how a university works, of a research university with specialized degree programs designed to focus on particular area of expertise. Um, you know, what a, uh, that is imported from Germany in, in the 1870s and 1880s. And Germany had ideas about academic freedom that they built into their model that came with uh, this new university model. And so lots of universities that are opened in the late 19th century are done are, are built on that German model of what a university is supposed to do. It's supposed to create new knowledge for multiple reasons. It's supposed to create new knowledge for the benefit of, of science and humanities in knowledge in and of itself, but it's also knowledge that's supposed to benefit the, the state and the people, right? And so there's an idea about creating useful knowledge being a repository of knowledge that the state can draw upon to build better railroads or create better social policy or what have you, that the university has some expertise that has some value and that is built upon academic freedom. Um, so you have this sort of new model of what a university is. You also have a lot of new universities open in the late 19th century. Some of these are ones that are founded, uh, financed by wealthy industrialists. We can think of Stanford, um, Johns Hopkins, uh, Duke University, Rice, uh, University of Chicago, Gilded Age industrialists saying, what am I going to do with my money? I'm going to build a university because that's a good way to better than some of the ways uh, billionaires spend their money. Um, and we also have a bunch of new land-grant universities. 
Do you want to explain what the land grant universities were? Sure. For our listeners? And are. They're still... Yeah, they're, 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 uh, yes. Uh, so uh, their land grant universities are, um, for the most part, public universities, although there, there are a handful of private land grant universities that are um, funded uh, through the sales of public lands. Uh, there's a Moral Land Grant Act of 1862. There's another one in 1890. These create... Um, on last count, 76 universities under those two acts that are designed um, for the most part to be public universities aimed at, at helping the formation of, you know, helping the, the state grow the local economy and grow uh, the supporting the local uh, government legislatures. Uh, lots of universities that, that uh, people might be familiar with are, are founded under these. Uh, listeners, North Dakota, North Dakota State University, good land grant university. Any university has a moral building, and half then seventy six universities I think probably have a moral building named after Justin Moral, the guy who uh, sponsored this legislation. Yes, it's not spelled like moral of the story. No, or <laughs> like of the mushroom. This is moral, uh, Justin Moral of, of Vermont. Um, there are some private land grants. Uh, I think MIT is a private land grant. Cornell is a private land grant, but most of the rest of these are public universities and they're designed towards um, creation of new knowledge, but also teaching students um, practical skills, technological skills, industrial skills. So lots of them have agriculture programs, lots of them have uh, engineering programs, architecture programs. A lot of those are open at the same time. There's a huge growth in the number of American universities in the 1890s. I think you know the number of professors basically doubles in that time period. So what is the role of academic freedom in these institutions, David, especially since many of them are publicly funded? So they're public institutions. These are public employees. Well, some of them are public employees and some of them are employees of places that are have a very wealthy donor with a right. very strong interest. Yes, yeah, and very strong views. And very strong views. And, and so actually one of the first cases, uh, one of the first, some of the big early debates about academic freedom actually happens at these these ones with private donors with, with private views. Um, one of them happens um, at, at Stanford. There was a professor there, a guy named Edward uh, Ellsworth Ross, who uh, was an economist and a sociologist. He was a very controversial figure, uh, both on campus and off campus. He was a proponent of, of silver monetary policies, which in the 1890s was a very controversial thing to be in favor of. He was also anti-immigration. He had some eugenics views that were fairly controversial. And Leland Stanford's widow, Jane Stanford, went to the president of the university and, and she said, quote, Professor Ross cannot be trusted and he should go. He is a dangerous man. And she basically asked the university president to fire this guy because she didn't like him. Because she said, look, it's my husband's money. It's funding this whole thing. Um, and somewhat reluctantly, the university president fired him. That's one of the his firing... Uh, led to a number of other members of the, of the Stanford faculty uh, resigning. Uh, and it's sort of that event that's one of the things that led to the formation of the American Association of University Professors, the AAUP, which is 
one of the organizations that's really helped to, to both define academic freedom and defend it over the past century. Yeah, and soon after they were founded, what was it, about 1915, they, lay, they, they, they produce a, a list of principles rules that, that, that lays the foundation of what academic freedom is. The other case is that about the same time um, involves a, a professor, a historian named John Spencer Bassett, who was a professor at Trinity College, uh, which is now called Duke University. It was already being funded by the, by the Duke family. He was a historian of slavery and of the, the American South. He published a journal. He was very much part of this sort of new vision of what uh, academics were supposed to be about. And he writes in an article that he thought uh, that, that Booker T. Washington um, was all in all the greatest man save General Lee born in the South in 100 years. And when he, and for those of you who don't know, Booker yeah, T. Washington is, is, a, is probably the most prominent African-American at, at the, the time period. He was the head of the Tuskegee Institute. He famously got invited to have dinner at the White House with Teddy Roosevelt. Um, but for a professor to say, look, this is the, the second greatest person the South has created in the past century after Robert E. Lee uh, is an African-American in the context of 1903 in North Carolina, which had five years earlier had a had a, coup, a white supremacist coup take place, and in which racial violence was was endemic uh, in 1903. You know there were immediate calls for him to resign. There were threats against his life, and um, he offered to resign after he wrote this. He went to the board of trustees. He said, "Clearly, I've caused some controversy and disrepute uh, to the university." And the Board of Trustees, this is the intriguing thing, voted 18 to 7 to decline his offer to resign. Um, and this is what the board said. We are particularly unwilling to lend ourselves to any tendency to destroy or limit academic liberty. We cannot lend countenance to the degrading notion that professors in American colleges have not an equal liberty of thought and speech with other Americans. They said, look, you know, so the university backed him up and said, look, you said something unpopular. You may have said something that's going to get you lynched. And it turns out he wasn't. But um, we will back you up in saying that. That's very interesting. And what happened to him? Uh, he taught there for a while and then he went uh, a couple more years and then he decided to relocate to Smith College, Massachusetts. Right. Which is a slightly safer uh, environment for, for teaching in terms of saying good things about Booker T. Washington. Right. Interesting. Interesting. Um, and he's wrote some very interesting material on history of slavery in North Carolina and other things. Um, but I think, you know, those two events I, I see as being sort of uh, the beginning of the debate about what academic freedom is and will, will become and, and, you know, the firing of Ross that... I think they're very interesting. I think both, uh, both of them because they come from what might be considered either end of the political spectrum mm. in, in that turn of the century period. So, you you know, Ross was, if you will, on the right. Yeah. And Bassett yeah. is, is, is coming from the left, at least in terms of praising Booker T. Washington in the context of um, North Carolina mm. in the early 20th century. And, and, uh, so, and this goes to one of the things I think that comes, will come out of our conversation today, which is, Debates about academic freedom and the limits of freedom of speech 
span the political spectrum. Actually, it depends on the on the current moment. Mm. Would you agree with that? Yeah, no, I think I think it is very obviously like everything else. It's very contextual. Like the mat, the moment matters, right? You know, when we think about the document that they're sort of they're, they're, the AAUP, the American Association for University Professors, they begin to articulate what they think academic freedom means but the, you know they first do it in 1915 so it's a very interesting point when we think about what the freedom of speech looks like more broadly in 1915 what it's going to mean say a couple of years later in the first world war what's going to mean later during the during the cold war um they, they define academic freedom uh they say the complete and unlimited freedom of professors and students to and it's interesting they included students uh, in 1915, to pursue inquiry and publish its results was fundamental to the purposes for which universities exist, which I think is a new idea about what universities are for that would have been very different than, say, what Thomas Jefferson may have thought universities were for when he's founding the University of Virginia. Or even 50 years before or 1965. Right. Yes. Universities were for teaching students a certain received body of knowledge, more or less. Yes. Right. I think that's that's very much the case. The, the uni whole idea of a modern university was, and what it's for is you know, very different in the early part of the 20th century than it had been earlier. Um, you know, and the uh, AAUP issues a later uh, statement in, in 1940 that, that sort of reaffirms what academic freedom is about and, you know, is about the freedom to... And if you read the documents, it's very interesting about what their what their sort of controls and caveats are. They they say it's it's about freedom to teach your subject in the classroom, to research your subject, and publish your subject. But they they, they have some caveats. Like they, they say, look, look, if you're a religious school, they can put some controls on things. They say, you know, this is not about speech that is outside of your area of expertise. Um so it's not, you know, unlimited freedom to say whatever you want in the classroom and publish whatever you want. It's about uh, articulating your freedom germane to your expertise. And a key corollary to that, David, I think, or, or a key bit of context mm -hmm. for that is, what is expertise? You mm -hmm. know, these, these people in the 19th century, in the earlier 19th century in universities, often taught across what we would consider the curriculum. Yeah. They often had, you know, they were polymaths. One of the things we see with the emergence of the modern university on the German model is the awarding of PhDs, a degree or equivalent, a, a degree that confers or recognizes expertise on an individual. So one then has a recognized area of expertise. So just as the major emerges as, as a concept, mm. and you'll, you take a body of courses surrounding a particular subject, that is, those courses are now being taught by an individual or individuals who have recognized and indeed accredited expertise mm. in that area. So one can only have academic freedom contingent on expertise if that expertise is recognized in some way. To be sure, yeah. And part of what goes on with the, the 1940 version of the statement, and which gets endorsed by pretty much all the academic organizations that existed at the time, um, is the idea that, that academic freedom and academic tenure are fundamentally related and the model of academic tenure that the American universities had for the next 80 years really sort of has its origins in that 1940 moment. 
where you know once you have finished your probationary period and demonstrated your ability to be a productive member of the academic community you have some at least in theory some protections granted by tenure to to say and 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 research where your academic interests drive you uh, without outside interference yes that's right but that is also now often not always it depends on the nature of the institution Mm. but contingent upon producing knowledge Mm. as an expression of your as evidence of your expertise in 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 the topic or or your subject i should say rather than topic and um so, so now universities are in the business of producing knowledge and 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 academics are in the in the business of producing knowledge and this is one of the things they are assessed on mm. um uh, particularly at elite institutions in ter- in terms of the question of awarding tenure so there are there's a fundamental change in, in the way universities are structured and the way academics um, define themselves and their their work is recognized mm. and so that's why this important distinction about the, the freedom to conduct your own research is so important yeah I mean tenure as a model has, has very much come under attack I think increasingly in the past 20 years as a as a as a system I mean I mentioned in the introduction that, that Georgia is, is is removing ten, the protections of tenure um, from um, faculty there, which is, uh, you know, uh, has, has, has angered many people on, uh, on both in Georgia and outside of Georgia for what that means for the state of academic freedom and the ability of political figures to, to shape what goes on on campus and to interfere or limit the ability of, of academics to pursue the interests that, that, uh, uh, that, they, that they're driven to, to research. What, uh, what, what's the justification? Uh, I mean, I, I, I haven't followed the Georgia situation as closely as I probably should have in anticipation of mm. this uh, episode. So, so what, what, what's the justification for revoking tenure in, in Georgia or for getting uh, eliminating tenure? Well, so I mean, I think the, the attacks on tenure in Georgia and in other places is the, uni- the legislature says, look, we invest money in this state university. We want to be able to make decisions about hiring and firing individual members of staff this is antithetical to our understanding of how labor systems work this is under, you know antithetical to how we understand you know free speech to work if some people have have protections that, that that allows them to not be as productive and to not be engaged in the same kind of review that other people are um That's my understanding, at least, of the situation in Georgia. Um, but we see similar kinds of moves against tenure uh, in in other universities, um, and so with other some places either abolishing it or creating post tenure review, which seems like that if you have a post tenure review, that means it's not you don't really fully have unfettered tenure if if you're having your research assessed uh, periodically. We there is research assessed period. I mean, again, yeah, I, we don't have we, tenure. I, well, mm. that, that's my point. Yeah. I, I know we don't have tenure, but um, I, I want to make clear I'm not arguing for the elimination of tenure. But mm. let, let me let me play devil's advocate mm. here and say, uh, look, in the modern world, particularly the gig economy, nobody's got tenure and job security in the way that they did 
60 or 70 years ago, and that this is tenure in, in higher education in the United States is a, a kind of artifact mm. of a different time, and it's not fit for the modern world. So let's leave the politics of it aside. And I realize that's a huge caveat. Okay, yeah, yes. So, 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 because this has been largely been driven by politics, mm. and, and um, but, but respond to that. Well, I mean, the benefits of tenure, I think, in my mind, it's sometimes hard to assess exactly, you know, how much both an individual member of, of faculty uh, or the university or this community benefits from somebody receiving tenure. Um, you know, the the, the, the explanation we, we... No, David, we all watch the chair. We know that people with tenure are useless. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, yeah, no, I interrupted you. I no, 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 no. It's, it's uh, but, but I mean that that that, that is the, the stereotype. I think that the people, uh, maybe people in the Georgia legislature, are, are attacking. They say, "Look, once people receive tenure, then they slack off because they think they can't get fired, and we want to, you know, make the comfortable uncomfortable or uneasy, um, you know." And to be sure, one can think of examples of people who get to get tenure and then. You know they don't do very much research the rest of their careers, but I think those are the exceptions rather than the rule. Um, I don't think the system itself um, is inherently uh, problematic because of that. There is a, a you know question about how do, do people with tenure therefore engage in the kind of intellectually risky research that they wouldn't if they didn't have protections of tenure? Do they engage in those kinds of projects that somebody with, who had a more tenuous employment uh, wouldn't. And we can think of, of both in the humanities and in the sciences, people who seem to be doing research, everyone's like, why are you doing that? What's the benefit of that? What's going to end up? And 20 years later, we're like, oh, okay, now we understand what you were doing. And, and that now we see what you're doing has benefit but if you had assessed them five years into that project, two years into that project, you may have said, you need to stop doing that. You're wasting your time because you have not produced the kinds of results that society needs. Um, and we can think about that in terms of, of research and into, uh, we can think about that in physics. We can think about that in science and medicine in chemistry and obviously in, in the humanities where some people spend, say, I want to look at do this project and it's going to take me 20 years to do it. There's value to those projects that take 20 years to produce something of value. But when it does, it, it can be meaningful. Uh, and, and creating structures and frameworks that allow that to happen, I think, is, is beneficial. Um, the other sort of sort of upside of, of tenure or structure of tenure in the United States that I think is interesting is about how you know academics on the whole don't get paid very well. And you know, the, the benefits of having good job security is, is you know, that in some places it was, has been used as a claim for why uh, academics aren't going to be as well uh, remunerated for their services as, as somebody with an equal amount of education uh, and expertise in, in the private sector. Um, take that for what you will. I don't, I'm not quite sure how much of that, that works as an argument given how tenuous tenure is at the moment. Um, do you think, and I know we've got to go back mm. to the kind of historicizing mm. a lot of this, but do you think the tenure system is, uh, on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being eliminated, 
One being nothing to see here, nothing to worry about. Mm. Uh, how great is the danger to the tenure system in the United States at the moment? Oh, I think there's. A, I think tenure is, is. Well, one of the things that's happened, and this is true in universities everywhere, but it seems to be more problematic in the United States than it is necessarily other places. Something like only 25% of, of academics at, of teaching at the moment, of academic posts, are held by tenure or tenure-track faculty. The other 75% are done by contingent faculty of a variety of different kinds. Which means that when we talk about the debates over tenure, we're really actually only talking about a segment, a small segment, an important but a small segment of, of the academic community that, that much of the work of the university is being done by people for whom these debates about tenure are, are like, you know, debates over what the best kind of caviar is. You know, it's, it's totally irrelevant to their life experience. Um, and I think, you know, what tenure means in a context where most people's work experience is, is so contingent, um, I mean, I think tenure as a system is probably in most places is dying. Um, now, I mean, there's a lot so of different So on my kinds. one to 10 scale? I would say to... a nine and a half. Right, okay, gosh. What would you think? I mean, I think it depends on what kind of university you're talking well, about yeah, here. It does depend on the nature of the institution, where it is, public versus private, etc. So, so I, 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 I uh, and I'm always slightly less pessimistic on this program, I think, than you are. So I, but but I, I, I think tenure's, I think you're right. I think tenure's institution is... is or yeah. uh, is in trouble, but I, I, I mean, whether six the, or seven, I would say. Okay, but, but I mean, the question what difference is, does it make? <laughs> of all the things that are on fire in academia right now, I, I think there are other fires that, that require the fire hose more than, than the fighting to preserve tenure. I think dealing with you know working conditions for contingent faculty is a much bigger and more important issue than than protecting tenure for the, the handful of people who still have it. Right. But that that's, um, I, one could disagree with me on that, and I would welcome disagreement. So, so the AAUP came out with a kind of revised statement on academic freedom in, the, in 1940. Mm. Um, what happened after 1940, <laughs> David? <laughs> well, there's this little Cold War thing that just, I think, you know, really threw a wrench into this whole idea of what academic freedom looks like. You have... You know, the FBI investigating academics, you know, throughout the, the 1940s and 1950s, including people that, you know, like W.B. Du Bois, the FBI was, you know, investigating him and they managed to get him fired from uh, Atlanta University. Uh, the House on American Activity calls a number of academics before uh, their committee to testify. The University of Washington ends up firing three of their tenured faculty members who refused to testify. Um, a number of universities put in place, starting with the University of California, I think, put in place loyalty oaths where they make faculty sign statements about their personal political views and where you know, they say they're not communists and don't support the Communist Party and all these other kinds of things. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a tried and true... Um... It's an archetypal. The 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 left leaning academic is an is an American archetype, right? Yeah. Um, it is worth saying, of course, and, and this was true. Mm. We see this during the McCarthy Red Scares. The Communist Party was very large in the United States in the nineteen thirties, yeah. which is not surprising that twenty years later, lots of people were were kind of 
implicated in that. I was a communist, and so... Um, or academics say, yes, I've read these things. Right, yeah. all right. So uh, you've got some evidence for the uh, for the uh, red academic, don't you? Dan? Well, so I, one of the things I found, and I'll put this in the show notes because I think it's just amusing to look at, uh, uh, the cover of American Legion magazine, which I guess is for people who are well, veterans. veterans yeah. yeah. And in the headline, the, the thing on the headline of the cover says, do colleges have to hire red professors? It says parents, well, it's interesting, it says parents. Um, can you know, can pre uh, prevent um, uh, uh, universities from hiring these people who are, who are there under the premise of, quote, academic freedom. And it's got this sort of very... Professorial, stereotypically professorial uh, guy with oh, a bow tie. Yeah, I was to say he's better dressed than we are, David. Well, okay, nineteen fifties <laughs> professorial, not nine. You know, twenty. You know, he he's wearing a suit and he's got a bow tie and he's got glasses and he's got a short haircut and he's he he's waxing eloquent to uh, some some very young looking undergraduates who are who are gazing up at him and 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 are becoming communists. What's the date of that? Nineteen fifty one. Right. You know, and and so the, but there is a real effort to sort of crack down on professors. There was a, a poll that was done um, by, by the Ford Foundation about this in the 1950s, where they talked to 2,451 professors of social science of various kinds. And they asked them, um, you know, have your academic freedoms been, been um, challenged you know, in recent years? And they said, this is, this is fascinating to me, two-thirds of them said they had been visited by the FBI. So out of these 2,000-something professors, two-thirds of them have been visited by the FBI and been questioned about their political beliefs, the beliefs of their colleagues, and their students. You know, and so there is a real effort to crack down on certain kinds of political speech, you know, in the 1950s that includes, you know, firing a professor, sidelining your professors. And that takes, you know, a variety of different, you know, there's sort of the... the high point of that during the sort of uh, House and American activities McCarthy era, but that doesn't entirely go away. You know, during the Vietnam era, you find similar kinds of, of uh, critiques of professors as being dangerous to uh, the society. Uh, for instance, in 1969, Angela Davis, the uh, philosopher, was was hired in the by the by UCLA, um, a number of places that were recruiting here. Princeton was recruiting her, Swarthmore was recruiting her, but she goes to UCLA. Um, and she was also, among other things, besides being a philosopher and a radical feminist and a, a member of the Black Panther Party, uh, she was also a communist. And UCLA decided to fire her because she was a communist. Uh, pushed on by then Governor Ronald Reagan, who said, "Look, we do not want communists teaching at our universities; they're going to have bad influence on our children." Um, there was a judge who said that they couldn't fire her, and so they she ended up going, um, getting rehired or unfired. But then they fired her again for inflammatory speech that she had used. Did she have tenure? Do you know? No, because she was an assistant professor, right? So, and she was like. 25 at the time. You know, she was very young. Right. Okay. Um, but I, mean, I think that's, and there were other professors who were fired based on speaking out in the Vietnam War uh, in the late 60s and early 70s. And so there were 
lots of critiques uh, of, of you know uh, the, the sort of reality of what academic freedom looked like throughout the Cold War, but especially in the in the fifties and sixties, uh, was very constrained. Right, there were things you you couldn't say, especially about certain political subjects that were that were verboten. But of course, this period also coincides not the fifties but the sixties. With the rise, and indeed this mm. will fuel that backlash against the professoriate, mm. but the rise of student activism, and especially yeah. the free speech movement on campus, at, you know, at Berkeley, for mm. example, but around the country and student protests around civil rights and also then later Vietnam and, and various other issues. So that student unrest will fuel the backlash mm. against universities generally, which will be having implications for, for academics. But is separate from it. This is where we see academic freedom and freedom of speech um, coming together, but also occasionally coming into conflict. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So when I was, you know, quoted the Supreme Court earlier, I mean, that's one of the places where they sort of, you know, they're dealing with these questions about can the state, as an employer, as the the, the ostensible head of these universities, you know, can they limit the freedom of speech of of, of academics with with um, loyalty oaths and these kinds of things. Um, you know, one of the, the questions that is always sort of you wrestle with, with with academic freedom is, you know, freedom from imposition by 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 whom? Is it by the government? Is it by the university? Is it by elements within the university? Is, is it from you know where where are the limits of, of of who are you protecting that freedom from, and, and does that then also limit the ability of academics to criticize other academics? Is, is where 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 are the boundaries for that? And I think a lot of the debates we've seen, you know, recently um, are in part about where these boundaries of of, of academic free speech are, academic freedom are. Um, and and who gets to decide, make these decisions about what kinds of academic activities are in bounds and what kinds of academic activities are out of bounds, uh, and and you know where our areas of expertise lie. You know there was a um, a case at UNC a couple of years ago where a professor, a history professor, uh, wanted to teach a class on the history of of university athletics. This was not his field of expertise particularly, but he wanted to teach a class on it because UNC had had a number of controversies about their their uh, athletic programs and the ethics thereof. And he wanted to teach a class about the history of, of that. And the athletic department tried to say, no, we don't want you to do that. We, we, we'd rather teach that history of that class instead. And you know, there are various politics happening within the universities about whether yeah, this professor could teach the class that he wanted to teach, even if it was outside of his narrowly defined field. He was a French historian. Um, and it caused a lot of sort of political um, upheaval, both within on campus and off campus, because it was a sports are important, I guess. Um, but we can think of lots of other cases where there are you know, fights within universities about where an individual's academic freedom begins and ends. Um, and what role both governments play and what role that donors play. You know, academic donors play a huge role in 
in shaping many universities. Many universities are beholden to uh, donors today for, for funding various programs, especially as in some states where state funding for programs has declined. State universities are increasingly reliant upon private donations. And if the private donor says, yes, I will give you $10 million, but I want you to teach these three books. Do you accept the money or not? And I think lots of universities are wrestling with how do you reconcile the freedom of the university to make choices that are in the sort of self-governing best interest of the university versus they really need a new academic building and $10 million would help them or $100 million would help them do that. And I don't know how we sort of solve that problem because I think, I think that is a, a problem that, that universities mean everywhere face to some degree, but it, it seems that it's particularly at a crisis point right now in the United States. I think that's right. I think there's another element to this that we ought to discuss, mm. and I know we need to, to, to wrap this up, but I think that is, is really um, germane to the current situation, which is the appearance of conflict between academic freedom or how material is taught and the sensibilities of students or, mm. and uh, sensibilities uh, and sometimes political beliefs of students. And the, the, again, these can span the spectrum. Mm. So, so sometimes it's, it's, it's academics who are perceived to be conservatives um, offending the sensibilities of students who are, who are to the left of them. Sometimes it's the other way around. Um, and, and so there seems to be a tension now and it often manifests itself about not just not with teaching of particular courses, although that sometimes comes up so much as somebody inviting speakers to campus mm. and things like this. And so it it seems to me that we what we're seeing at the moment are lots of ructions over the tensions between academic freedom and student free speech and student opinion. I think that that's definitely we see that on campuses all over the country. I mean, and we also see, and I think the the University of Austin issue. Which situation. is not the University of Texas at Austin. Yes. I want to stress that. <laughs> Very different place. Um, one exists and has a campus. The other one is an idea and a web page, as far as I can tell. Um, but the, the origin of this new university, um, you know, are, are from conservative academics for the most part who say that conservative voices are being marginalized on American campuses, that, that they feel that their freedom, their academic freedom is stifled because of what they see as a kind of liberal orthodoxy uh, and, and censorship um, on other campuses. Um, and so they're trying to, they argue, they're trying to create a place where there aren't those kinds of safe spaces or other kinds of restrictions on the, from their perspective on their ability to articulate viewpoints uh, which may not be um, universally popular on some campuses. What do you, what do you think about the, the claim that conservatives make that, that, that they are alienated and marginalized on campuses? I think 
it's very difficult for us to assess this from afar. Mm. So this is one where I'm slightly sidestepping the question. And we haven't been there. I haven't been to the United States in going on two years now. Mm. So so it's been, and this is a fast-moving topic. Oh, to so, be sure. so I am viewing it from afar and basically from what I read and in mm. uh, in media and and view in media and social media. So so mm. that's a really important qualifier. It does seem to be it's, it's this, this is tricky because I think there's a lot of posturing over this. Mm. So people feigning um, outrage and and that their they that their rights have been violated or, or their 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 views have been censored when they haven't. Mm. Having said that, I do also think we're in a moment, and we've seen a number of examples of this, and we talked about it on, on this podcast in in various forms over the past year or so. People are very, very angry about a lot of things <laughs> yes, at the moment. Are. And and there yes, are a are. lot of issues that don't necessarily, that, that one ought to be able to discuss openly and freely that are hard. Mm. And that's not always possible at the moment. And I don't think that's strictly a left-right thing. I think it sometimes manifests itself mm. that way. So... Um, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean you don't have enemies. I mean, so I think I I think there's some cosplay outrage going on mm. here um, among celebrity some celebrity academics who are often quite well compensated and are not really in any. Danger. Yeah, most most of the people whose names are associated Niall with Ferguson it. is fine. Yes, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but but having said that. I, I think there is an issue, and again, I don't think it breaks down easily mm. on a left-right basis. So I think a lot of people, um, uh, th it appears to be left-right at the moment mm. in U.S. higher education, but I don't think that's the case. Uh, so, but I, I think there there are issues, and I think we again we've seen manifestations of it here, and we're deliberately avoiding mm. those. Um, probably so. The very fact we're avoiding them is in part no. a comment on the current moment. Uh, to be sure. Um, so I, I think there is I think there is a problem with free speech on campus. Well, one of the Would you? yeah, Would you? I, sh I think there w depends on which campus you're talking about because uh, there are lots of different campuses. Context you know, really matters, of course. Um, you know, the 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 fascinating thing about higher education in the United States is about the sort of diversity of different sure. kinds of, of university. That I think there's much greater diversity in, in terms of, of how things are taught and why things are taught, and where than there is say in the UK, where I think right. the universities are more similar to each other. Uh, relatively speaking, um, you know, and I think in some places there is a, a case where you can be made where, where, where some academics may feel like their their viewpoints are marginalized and silenced. But I'm not quite sure those their experience there is universal of what things are like on other campuses. Um, you know, I, I can think of, of um yeah, you know, there's some there's some conservatives say, look, uh, as a conservative, I don't feel I can speak my mind on campus. But that may be because of the nature of which campus they're on, which department they're in. Uh, if they were in a different campus in a different department, uh, in a different field, they may have they may not be in the minority anymore in terms of their viewpoint. Yeah, yeah, uh, sure, and that was the point I was yeah. making. The, but I, I, but I think it's a bigger problem than that. I don't think, uh, you know, depending on the campus and depending on the academic and the yeah. discipline, um, it's a, I think the problem is similar. I think the, the, the local context, you're absolutely right, mm. varies greatly. Um, and so there, are, there will be campuses where having 
progressive views are actually oh, yes. put you out of step. Uh, you know, I imagine at Liberty University. <laughs> yeah, they they probably wouldn't. I I you know. Um, and, and it's all it's all caught up in things like. Uh, it's been caught up in one's response to COVID mm. and masks and vaccinations. Yeah. And, and so there's there's a hell of a lot of anger out there about a lot of things. And I think it is stifling free speech and expression on yes. campus. Yeah. I, think, I, I think with the crucial proviso that I haven't been there mm. now for nearly two years, and that's an important, that's important. Yeah. I, I think... I think there's a problem with, with yeah. free speech on campus. I think, it, and that's not to say I'm about to sign on to Austin University. Or, you know that that's not what I'm suggesting. Yes. But I think yeah. we have to be honest about this, and not because we find certain people complaining about this annoying mm. to think that there isn't a problem. Yeah. Does Does that make sense? No, it it it, it does. And and I mean, there's two thoughts on that. One is I think some of the coverage on this in the main in sort of the major media, um, you know, New York Times or whatever. They pay disproportionate attention to the situation on elite campuses and ignore the other 99% of university campuses. They pay a lot of attention to what's going on at Harvard and at Yale and at, you know, Ivy League kinds of places, Stanford. But uh, the um, state universities, the, 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 the non-flagship universities, which is where the majority of students go, community colleges, those get very little attention. Um, and I'm, so that, that's, I think the story is much more complicated when you look at the, the, the diversity of different kinds of places and the experiences are different. I'm very concerned about the degree to which, um, politics, especially in, in public and in, in public institutions, when in which state legislatures are directing universities what to teach and how to teach and what not to teach and what not to research. Um, I remember when I was teaching at, at North Dakota State, the one of the good uh, land-grant universities, um, there were some people who wanted to do uh, some research on, on sex education and how it was taught, and they were working with some partners on doing that. And the state legislature told them, no, you cannot do this. We will cut off funding for your entire university if this particular research researches this particular topic because one particular state legislature didn't like it, you know, and that kind of interference, we see versions of that happening all over the country in different iterations. And that I think is fundamentally dangerous. Um, oh, sure. Yeah, and, um, you know, uh, I remember there were, you know, that when that happened, there a bunch of us, there were protests, faculty protests, for all these reasons, saying, like, look, this is very important. And the president of the university um, basically said, like, look, if we don't do this, we are all out of a job. We basically have to do what the legislature tells us. They are our major source of funding, and, and, and you know, our options are very limited. Um, which I thought was entirely the wrong answer. I thought they should have done what Duke University did with, you know, John Bassett a hundred years ago, where they said, "Yes, you know, this may not be popular, but it's important, and academics should have the choices to make research and just what they want." And uh, Duke, of course, is a private institution and was able, you know, the institution could make that decision even if it was on to, to be sure, yes. Yeah. So there's, there's, there's different, again, this, the, the, the situation each individual place is going to be, be different and it's going to, those things matter. But, you know, um, 
Yeah, and, and North Dakota State, for example, will get the vast majority of its funding from the state. Yeah. Whereas other public institutions, University of Virginia, for example, I think only gets 8% of its income from this from the state of Virginia now, the Commonwealth yeah. of Virginia. Well, North Dakota wasn't getting it as much as it used to. I, mean, I think one of the things right. that's happened both you know across the board, part of the reason why, why the university tuitions everywhere is, is going up is because state universities in the before, say, 1970, used to be funded primarily by state money and only a small bit by university tuition. That's why, you know, like my father-in-law was able to go to a very good state university and pay, you know, $200 a year right. or something. You know, why? Well, it's because that was when all the universities were segregated and the legislature. You know, there's all kinds of historical reasons for that. Now, funding's dried up, and that's a real big problem. I think that it's a problem... The states are often, I think, shooting themselves in the foot, I think, because the American university system is one of the best in the world, and part of the reason why it's one of the best in the world is because for a long time these universities were very well funded, uh, and and in the you know vain, I think, effort to save money or something, um, I think uh, lots of states have, have undercut that, sometimes for financial reasons, often for, for political reasons. <sighs> Well, this is a depressing, depressing one, yes. David. <laughs> yeah, well, sorry. And we didn't even talk about UK higher education. No, no, well, that's... <laughs> everything's fine here, Frank. Didn't yeah. you think everything's fine? What's your last drop, David? Um, I want to uh, endorse, uh, if you're looking for an escape from all the things, which is, is always uh, in high demand right now, the, there's a, a new Western on, on Netflix, for those people who have Netflix, The Harder They Fall... Yet another streaming service that David has. David says... You have Netflix too. Shut up, He bathes in champagne and brushes his teeth with caviar. Yes, I have. <laughs> so t- tell us about The Harder They Fall, David. I haven't seen it yet. Oh, so so it's it's a Western, so it, you know, but it nearly uh, all the cast members are, uh, are African-American. And they're based... The story is fictional, but they're based in part on historical actors. Um, you know, and I think it's got Jonathan Majors in it. It's got Idris Elba, uh, Regina King, a number of other you know important uh, actors in it. Uh, but I think one of the things that this movie is doing, um, you know, is correcting people's visions of the West, which are very much shaped by the Western as a genre. You know, people have an image of the, the West in uh, the late nineteenth century as being being very white because of John Wayne movies and what have you. You know, when in fact lots of cowboys were African-American, there, there was a very substantial African-American presence in, in, in the, the Wild West, if that's the, the terminology people want to use. And I think this film is, is you know, part of a correction in, in the whole genre of things. So it's a, you know, it, it's a Western, it's fun, it's got violence and good, you know, scenery and stuff, but, uh, but, but worth, worth, worth watching. Where is it actually set? Uh, it's set in Texas, I believe. Okay. Excellent. Good. Um, I will add we'll, it to my list. Yes. Think things to things to entertain and distract. Right. Um, what do you got? Frank? I want to endorse, endorse. I want to, uh, I can't really endorse it cause I haven't listened to it yet, <laughs> but there's a new podcast. We are honest. That, if that's nothing coming else. out, uh, from Mount Vernon, uh, George Washington's home, which is now, of course, a museum and a public history venue. And they've got a new podcast coming out called Entwined, which I'm very excited about. 
because it's looking at the uh, lives of uh, the enslaved people at Mount Vernon. Mm. Who, uh, uh, Mount Vernon was a little bit late coming to this, I think, but now that they've come to really trying to, to deal with this history, uh, they, they've really put a lot of resources into it, and I, I think it, it looks to be a really, really good podcast, and I'm looking forward to listening to it. Yeah, me too. That sounds great. Yeah, great. Good. Cheers, David. Cheers. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and dean international for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at Whiskey Rebel Pod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes.